Now, comments have been made along the way about this expensive defense team. The prosecution has five lawyers in court being paid for by the taxpayers. They have policemen. They have an expensive team as well. And that's why Bob needs a team, because there is nothing more powerful than the government. From start to finish, nearly every witness in this case has been extremely good for the prosecution and very bad for the defense. Why Bob flee the house when he found her? He was scared. He still wrote the note. What murderer gives his victim $50,000 and then tells the police where to find the body? The defense has another theory in their closing argument. They're going to pretend that, in essence, Bob Durst didn't testify. They're not going to talk about any of his testimony at all. They're just going to completely ignore it. They have not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Durst murdered his dear friend. They haven't proven the special circumstances. I just hope that when this is over, you'll let Mr. Durst be in a hospital of his choosing to live out whatever time he has left. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Monday, September 13th, David Chesnoff finished closing arguments for the defense, and John Lewin launched into rebuttal for the prosecution. Lewin's precision-guided appeal to the jurors concluded the following morning, with the jury receiving the case in the afternoon of September 14th. In this special two-part episode, we're going to analyze the high-stakes final days of closing arguments and rebuttal, and we will conclude the second episode by bringing in our reporter, Charlie Bagley, for a final discussion of the closings and some general thoughts on our coverage of this trial. During his time at the lectern, David Chesnoff painted the people's arguments as theories without evidence and implored the jury to allow Robert Durst to live his remaining years as a free man. In response, John Lewin delivered a scathing recitation of Durst's alleged crimes and confessions, calling on the jurors to hold the defendant accountable for the murder of Susan Berman. After a trial that has lasted for more than a year and a half, these proceedings marked the attorney's last chance to persuade the jurors of the narratives for their case, their last chance to shape the jury's rendering of justice. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Early in the day, Judge Wyndham addressed the jury regarding statements that Dick DeGuerin made during his portion of closing arguments. Wyndham's guidance to the jury was in response to the prosecution's allegation that DeGuerin had committed attorney misconduct in his closing argument to the jury during the previous session. Uh, Before we uh, continue, ladies and gentlemen, on Thursday, uh, Mr. DeGuerin erroneously argued that there was evidence that the Galveston jurors heard which you were not privy to in this case. You are not to consider why that jury reached the verdict that they did. 
you are to evaluate the evidence that was presented in this trial for the limited purposes that I have given to you already. Proceedings continued with David Chesnoff taking over for Dick DeGarren for the second half of the defense's closing. Colleagues, Mr. Durst, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I've been assisting citizens and their loved ones in courtrooms for 40 years against the power of the state. People from all walks of life, doctors, lawyers, policemen, iron workers, people from across the spectrum of our country, I've helped as a criminal defense lawyer. It's no different when I help them than it is when I'm helping Bob. The job is to make sure that every American has the protection of the Constitution. Now, comments have been made along the way about this expensive defense team. If you'll notice, the prosecution has five lawyers in court, five, being paid for by the taxpayers. They have policemen, multiple policemen in court. They have an expensive team as well. And that's why Bob needs a team, because there is nothing more powerful than the government. You know, it's funny. Even though I've done this for a long time, I still get butterflies. I still get worried. But you know, then I take a deep breath, and I remember that we are all cloaked in the greatest document known to the world, the United States Constitution. It's why we are all proud to be Americans. And that Constitution is what mandates that unanimous verdicts be rendered after the highest standard in the law beyond a reasonable doubt is proven to you and met by the prosecution. That is their burden. That is their responsibility to bring you evidence that convinces you beyond a reasonable doubt of the charges. Here, when you apply the facts of this case to the law, I respectfully submit that the state has failed to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, and Bob is not guilty of shooting and murdering his dear friend, Susan Berman. Now, I want you to recall what I said during the opening statements a long time ago. No evidence is evidence. In other words, the lack of evidence to prove the crime is the evidence you should consider in acquitting Bob. They had a theory here, but they never put the meat to the bone. They told you how they believed things happened, but they produced no real evidence to establish and fulfill their obligation to prove beyond a reasonable doubt their theory. It's 2021, and you heard no forensic evidence suggesting that Bob Durst shot and killed Ms. Berman. Mr. DeGaren talked to you about Bob, but we have all seen this, the, the same effect where he sometimes doesn't pick up on cues. He's ill, old, on the spectrum, awkward, rude, can be crude. But as Mr. DeGaren described, he's still a person entitled to the same protections as someone who doesn't act like Bob. We're not asking that you justify or accept any of his boorish or crude behavior that you've heard. 
Being crude and being physical with your wife is terrible, but it is not evidence of a homicide in this case. Chesnoff then questioned the prosecution's evidence, specifically regarding Susan Berman's purported call to Dr. Cooperman at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Dr. Cooperman testified during the trial that he spoke with a woman on the phone who identified herself as Kathy Durst, but that he had no further indication that she was indeed Kathy. You heard real evidence that Mrs. Durst was alive after January 31st on February 1st, 1982, between 9 and 11 a.m., which completely contradicts the idea that she died in the house on January 31st. And why is that? Because she spoke with Dr. Dean Albert Cooperman at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine. Dr. Cooperman was a brilliant and accomplished man who was at his full strength in 1982 when he remembered speaking to Kathy. You heard testimony that Kathy actually called Assistant Dean of Students, Dr. Gene Cook's office, whose secretary then transferred the call to Dean Cooperman that Dr. Cook was not in. Dr. Cooperman testified, this is a question from Mr. Balian, and Dr. Cook warned you before he took off the week of February 1st to be on the lookout for Kathy Durst calling in ill, didn't he? He did alert me to that fact. Yes, keyword fact. And he didn't alert you to any other student, did he? No. That's why the parade of doctors who were classmates who said she'd never do that is nonsense. But that was just to get you to keep your eye, take your eye off the ball. Now, I was listening to the memorials for 9-11 the other day, and I had a lot of folks from New York, or so many of the people that perished. And I'm listening, and you can hear the New York accents when they're reading the names. It dawned on me. Dean Cooperman knows a New York accent. Kathy had a New York accent. Susan Berman was from the West Coast, speaks differently than Kathy Durst, who grew up and spent her whole life in New York. Dean Cooperman told that to the police 38 years ago. This learned man, he knew her. He says, I spoke to her. Well. He knows what she sounds like, or you don't say that. He heard her. It was not until he was pressured to question his memory that he ever questioned himself. However, his memory was fresh when he first reported it, and in the multiple interviews before a slight change of mind. Because Kathy called the medical school, that was mean. She was not killed in the South Salem home as the prosecution stated. Kathy was not killed by Bob, and their entire case is based on this false premise. Chesnoff then discussed the defense witness, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who testified about false memory. Loftus was originally deployed by the defense to insinuate that the witnesses who testified that Susan Berman told them that she made the call to Dr. Cooperman were misremembering Susan's statements. So I mentioned to you earlier that you heard from Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who is an internationally known psychologist and a distinguished professor at the University of California. In an extremely, what I would call, demeaning cross-examination, the state attempted to diminish the science of memory. It's a recognized science. Dr. Loftus' lifetime of research 
has focused on human memory, eyewitness testimony, and also on courtroom procedure. She's not some hired gun, as was suggested. She is respected and an internationally known scholar. The prosecution tried to belitter her on cross-examination, spending really no time on the science, but much time criticizing who she represents. As a lawyer and as jurors, I want you to rely on the science. She testified at trial about the workings of human memory, the effects of suggestion on memory, the mechanism of creation of false memories and the characteristics of false memories. Moreover, she identified some of the suggestive activities that occurred in the current case, such as leading questions and outside external information, including media, affecting the testimony of witnesses. Chesnoff spent over an hour on Dr. Loftus's theories on false memory and the possibility that Susan's friends were in error when they testified. This argument seemed to contradict Durst's own statements on cross-examination that he believed the witnesses were not lying, but rather relaying a lie from Susan. David Chesnoff next argued that Susan's true killer was never found due to an incompetent investigation. They have tried to argue that under no circumstances would Susan open the door for a stranger. That's not true. We don't know how the killer entered the home due to the bad police investigation. But we do know this, people were sneaking into the house after she was murdered. Her manager, Niall Brenner, crawled in through a window, and one of her girlfriends crawled in through a window. This is when the place is supposed to be secured by the police. The idea that somehow no one could be in that house because it was impenetrable is just not the, not the case. Mella testified that Susan had the ability to make lots of enemies. Oh, Susan had the ability to make a lot of enemies, correct? Yes. What did you hear about the LAPD doing anything to investigate Susan's enemies? Nothing. You also heard from another important witness in this case, Al Cleffin. He's the entertainer who became friends with Susan. He testifies about what the plans are for Christmas. That Bob's going to be there. Now, the people have made a big thing about the planner, but there's nothing in the planner about what Al Cleffin honestly testified about, which was that they were going to be together. So the planner's a red herring. That's the messiest, most disorganized planner that you can look at. The evidence showed that Mr. Cleffin met Susan in California. He was a performer and a writer. You heard that Susan made him aware of Bob coming to town for the holidays. You heard evidence that he was basically bragging about the fun he wanted to have with Bob when he visited for the holidays. And he was aware of Bob's generosity. This blows out the planner evidence because it's not in the planner. But he was made perfectly clear to him by Susan that this was happening. Having set forth these reasons for jurors to doubt aspects of the prosecution's case, Chesnoff moved on to discuss the prosecution's star witness, Nick Chavin. Nick Chavin. Now, the prosecution claims Mr. Durst confessed to him. The evidence shows that this is not the case at all. This is another example of the prosecution relying on alleged statements and not anything scientific or anything forensic. 
Mr. Chavin was interviewed by the DEA and the police numerous times, and he repeatedly denied that Mr. Durst made any kind of confession, including the alleged statement that it was her or me. Chavin told you that he was a liar. The prosecution harps on Mr. Durst for being a liar. But the prosecution wants to rely on an admitted liar themselves and a biased witness for their case. Mr. Chavin had pressure and constant questioning, and his wife was being threatened by the DA, and he changed his position after 10 times. Not, that misstates the testimony. No, no. Not threatening of a witness by the no, DA. No. Right. No. Uh, Objection sustained. Okay. They were badgering his wife. Okay? They were calling his wife over and over. Ladies and gentlemen, the witnesses called by the prosecution simply don't prove that Bob is guilty of murdering Susan Berman. The evidence shows that many of Bob's friends were well-to-do, so he didn't need to give money to them. His extremely close friend, Susan, needed help, and he helped her. So just because he gave Susan money doesn't mean he was bribing her. And there's no proof that she was extorting him. And in fact, her friend said she would never do that. Again, if she was really a witness and holding these secrets, why didn't she get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars from Bob? Why did she have to wait till she was destitute? He had extreme wealth. If Bob was bribing her to cover up such a big secret, why didn't he give her cash? Why is he writing her checks? Let's see. I'm being extorted. I don't want there to be any evidence that I'm bribing her. Why wasn't he giving Susan cash if he was, she was part of some plot? Completely inconsistent. Why Bob flee the house when he found her? He was scared. In Bob's mind, there are people that think he did a bad thing and have never let go of it. He still wrote the note. What murderer gives his victim $50,000 and then tells the police where to find the body? And here's the other thing. They made a whole thing about how he tried to dispose of Morris's body and how he disposed, allegedly disposed of Kathy's body. Her body's just lying there, Susan's body. So if they're going to be consistent about how their theories work, that he's a disposer of bodies, why did he leave her if he killed her? It's inconsistent. He didn't dispose of the body because he did not kill her. After going over possible inconsistencies in the prosecution's argument, Chesnoff concluded his remarks by attacking the people's lack of forensic evidence. The evidence showed that the police investigation in January and February of 2001 was shoddy and incomplete and did not produce one piece of forensic evidence establishing that Bob murdered Susan. By the way, as of January 12th, almost two weeks after she'd been murdered, they hadn't even assigned a criminalist to the case. No fingerprint scrapings were done on Susan to identify a positive possible attacker. Skin from a, you know, a fight or something can go under nails. Years later, in 2013, they tried to save face and considered exhuming Susan's body, but they didn't. 
They chose not to. The only way you would know if there were scrapings were to have done that in meeting their burden to prove somebody guilty of murder beyond a reasonable doubt. Bob was in the home. They couldn't even find evidence of him. Who else did they miss? They missed the real killer. You also heard evidence from the autopsy that there were marks and bruises on Susan's hand, which maybe came from fighting or defending herself. There were also purple contusions on the front of the left and right thighs and inner right thighs. No follow-up done by the police. They said that it came from falling. This was a botched investigation. Now let's blame it all on Bob. That's what we always do. And people wonder why Bob Durst was running, because it never stops. You will put a stop to it. Chesnoff did not address the prosecution's assertion that there was not physical evidence of Durst inside Berman's home because Durst made an effort to conceal that presence by wearing gloves and covering all tracks. He then moved on to his conclusion. I want, I want to leave you with the following. I want, I want you to imagine that one of your relatives is very sick in the hospital and they're basically on life support. And a decision has to be made as to whether or not you say enough is enough. So it's kind of like analyzing this by listening to what the doctor says. You're going to rely heavily on what the doctor says. And you walk into the room to talk to the doctor, and the doctor is Nick Chavin. Would you rely on Nick Chavin to decide that important issue in your life? Or would you run from the hospital room? They're asking you to rely on Nick Chavin for a life and death decision. You would not rely on Dr. Chavin. You can't rely on witnesses who have biases like him, who admitted to you that he's indebted to the Durst organization, to Douglas Durst. That's what we have. They have not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Durst murdered his dear friend. They haven't proven the special circumstances. Under the law, you must find Bob guilty. I meant it when I said that it's been remarkable to watch you study and pay attention to this. And I just hope that when this is over, you'll let Mr. Durst be in a hospital of his choosing to live out whatever time he has left. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mm-hmm. 
With that somber plea, Chesnoff returned to the counsel's table, and John Lewin rose to deliver the prosecution's rebuttal. He quickly lightened the mood with a touch of self-effacing humor. As many of you, probably maybe all of you have noticed, um, I am not the thinnest guy in the world. I tend to be whatever prosecution team I'm on, I'm usually the heaviest. In this case, I got to be the oldest and the heaviest. And for many years, 25 years, that's been my enemy. Before it was famous, before anybody knew what Randy's Donuts was, 26 years ago, I worked in this courthouse. I worked across the street, and I used to drive on my way to work, and I'd have to get off on Manchester, and I would play a little game with myself. I would say, okay, if the light is red at Manchester, God wants me to have a donut. But, yeah, the problem with that is sometimes the light wasn't red. So I found out that actually it's such a long straightaway coming off the freeway that you could see it. And I would literally drive 15 miles an hour if I had to so that when I pulled up, oh, it's red. Uh, God must really want me to have this donut. Um, um, it's so hard to pass it up. And it's really, really, really difficult. And I always thought that, that was kind of the toughest thing that I would have to do. And then I became a trial lawyer. And then I started doing long cases. And I realized that as hard as it is to pass up that donut, the hardest thing in the world is when the defense is giving their closing argument. And I just have to sit there. You want to get up and you want to scream. As an example, just last week, Mr. DeGarren. There is no evidence that Bob, killed, uh, Bob Durst killed Kathy Durst or that she's even dead. Or today, when Mr. Chesnoff says, and, and this, is, this is minor in terms of mistakes, but, quote, they threatened then badgered Terry Chavin. Terry Chavin called us. We spoke to her twice. She's the one who called us. We didn't threaten or badger her. But you want to get up and you want to yell and you want to scream. You can't do it. This has not been easy. It's not been easy for any of you. It hasn't been easy for us. It hasn't been easy for defense counsel, for the court, and probably for Mr. Durst. And we truly appreciate all of your effort, all of your concentration, all of your sacrifice on being here. Now, I want to show you a slide. This is a slide that I actually just put in the computer today. And that's just a picture of Kathy. Do you know why I put that up there? I'll tell you. Because it is bad enough that that man killed her. That's what he did. That's what the evidence shows. But that's not enough. He's had to kill her and kill her and demean her and dehumanize her. And listen, his attorneys have a job to do. That's fine. But how many times have we heard, and it's always the same thing, listen, I don't want to demean Kathy Durst. What's the next line? But she's a drug addict, drunk, uh, and sleeps with a bunch of men. That's what we've heard over and over and over again. And today, it was time to demean Susan Berman, which I'll get to. So, something to think about, because it's important. There are three people who this man is responsible for killing. Three human beings. This isn't a game, it's not a mock trial. There are real people behind the facts that you guys have seen. and. Although everybody has a job to do, you as jurors need to be able to understand, well, why is the defense talking about 
Kathy's, quote, cocaine problem? Well, because they don't want to talk about the evidence in the case. Why do they want to talk about her alcohol issues, allegedly? Well, because they don't want to talk about their client's testimony. Um, and again, this is just a little minor point, and this is one of the things that's just amazing to me. Kathy Durst certainly ended up having difficulties. She ended up having problems, particularly in 1980, in 1979, in 1981. And Bob Durst has the nerve to get up there and to basically make the argument when he's testifying that, well, it wasn't me. Look, Kathy was missing school. Why was Kathy missing school? Because he was beating her. He was abusing her. It was horrendous. Mr. Chesnoff today called it, quote, prudish or boorish behavior. Prudish or boorish behavior? That's like a, when somebody, you know, touches the hors d'oeuvres wrong. This is domestic violence, horrific violence, demeaning, dehumanizing. So when you hear these attacks on these women, and then you hear the defense going, well, but listen, I'm not really attacking them. Do not be fooled. That's exactly what they're doing. When someone tells you, hey, it's not about the money, it's usually about the money. And when someone tells you, you know what, I don't want to demean and, and dehumanize these women, but let me throw some stuff at you. That's what's gone on. That's why I added that slide. After invoking the humanity of the victims, Lewin moved on to what he characterized as the prosecution's substantial and compelling evidence. So let me be clear. Um, we've done our job. We put on a case that is overwhelming. And how is it overwhelming? It's overwhelming circumstantially. It's overwhelming with direct evidence. It's overwhelming there is physical evidence. And then we have, after all that, we have Bob Durst get on the stand, and we have a series of admissions. Every day he was up there was more damaging evidence. About the only thing that we have not given you in this case is literally a videotape of the murder. It's about the only thing we haven't given you. Defense says, well, you don't have any physical evidence. What physical evidence would you expect? What are you going to get? Bob Durst goes in, very likely wearing gloves, and executes her in the back of the head and leaves. He's admitted that he was touching phones, et cetera, and there's no fingerprints. What does that mean? The only reasonable inference is he's wearing gloves. You would expect him to be wearing gloves because Bob Durst went down there knowing exactly what he was going to do. So based on the evidence that's been presented in this case, it goes one way. From start to finish, nearly every witness in this case has been extremely good for the prosecution and very bad for the defense. And listen, some of you might be saying to yourself, well, wait a minute. Well, that can't be right. I mean, we've been in, we've been in trial five months. Um, there must be some trick. There must be something that they're not telling me. Why are we in trial? And you need to remember something. In this country, no matter how guilty you are, you have a right to a trial. In other words, just because somebody pleads not guilty and says I'm going to, a going to trial doesn't in any way mean that they're not factually guilty of the offense they've committed. People have a right to say, you know what, prove it. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you have videotapes and witnesses, etc. I want my trial. So when we get up here 
and we end up presenting all this evidence and you end up going, well, gosh, it's, it's so complicated. Um, they put on so much evidence. This isn't complicated. This is about as simple a case as you'll ever find. There is, by the way, there is no time limit that you have as jurors. You could go back in that jury room and it would certainly be reasonable for you to go, okay, prosecution's put on what amounts to about four confessions. Bob Durst is finding the body. He's setting the cadaver note. He's got Susan Berman uh, breathing on him when she's dead. He's got uh, garbage about staycations and marijuana pot growers and industrial-sized tampons. I mean, some of the stuff that he came up with, it, it, it's, it, it was just awe-inspiring. You sit there going, oh my gosh, where does he even come up with this from? Lewin concluded his first day of rebuttal with this appeal to common sense, a now well-established theme of the prosecution's argument. So just because this case is lengthy doesn't mean when you go back into that deliberation room that you have any obligation to go, okay, let's look through every piece of evidence. You are well within your discretion, if you so choose, to go back and say, okay, we've heard the evidence. Is there anybody here who doesn't think that the prosecution's proven this case beyond a reasonable doubt. And if that's where you are, and that's what the evidence dictates, that's it. This is not complicated. The defense wants this to be complicated. They want it to be involved. They want it to be controversial. It isn't. It is very basic. When he returned to the lectern the next morning, Lewin addressed several theories about Robert Durst's behavior. I want to briefly cover some issues about Bob Durst in particular. And let's dispel some of just the ideas that are out there. Bob Durst is not crazy, okay? He's not some nut job serial killer who goes around killing for the thrill of it, etc. He also did not do what he did because he allegedly has Asperger's or is on the spectrum. That was completely made up, it's manufactured, and it's demeaning because there are millions of people who are out there who have to struggle with those conditions. And the idea that somehow he gets to get up there and blame his murderous conduct or the way that he treats people because I have Asperger's and I'm on the spectrum, it's insulting. What is Durst? He's a narcissistic psychopath. What does that mean? That means that Bob Durst is only concerned with Bob Durst. That's it. That's what he lives, breathes, and thinks about. Listen, Bob Durst is not John Wayne Gacy who's killing for the thrill of it, etc. Bob Durst killings, if you're going to actually say that murder can make sense, they make sense. And this is what I want you to think about. People that are crazy, they end up, they, they kidnap somebody they've never met, they kill them for the pleasure of it. Maybe there are sexual things involved. That's not Bob Durst. What happened in this case? He killed his wife. Now, what are the circumstances of that killing? And by the way, the defense keeps telling you, you don't know what happened to Kathy. We don't know what happened to Kathy because the evidence is he got rid of her. You don't get to kill somebody, get rid of the body, and then argue you don't have a case. That's what they tried to do with, that's what he tried to do with Morris. He was one stupid decision from getting away with it. If he just dumps those body parts any other place, we have no evidence. It looks like Kathy Durst. So Bob Durst is not somebody who kills for the thrill of killing. If you think about it, 
the only difference between Bob Durst and the rest of us is that for everybody else out there, for people who are not narcissistic psychopaths, murder is not a means of resolving their problems. People don't go, gosh, you know what? I don't like my boss. He's a real jerk. Yeah, I'm going to have to kill him. That's not how people work. But for Bob Durst, murder might not be his first option. It might not be his second option. It might not be his third option. But in the end, pushed into a corner, murder is an option for him. So it's really important that you understand who this man is. He's a person, he's privileged, he's a narcissist. I can do whatever I want. Why does he get food stamps from uh, the government? He doesn't need the money. He does it because he wants to do it, he enjoys it, he likes beating the system. How do you know? He told you, comes out of his mouth. When he talks about his work, what does he say? Uh, you know, I would show up uh, afternoon wearing nothing more than a jock and I would make it clear to everybody that I didn't have to do what they did because I'm me. That's an honest self-assessment of who he is. That's not Asperger's, that's not being on the spectrum, that's just being a jerk. And I believe, um, I believe Mr. Durst at one point, I think he referred to himself as an asshole when he testified at one point. Hard to argue, but that's not a condition, that's a choice. Lewin then addressed the notion of the presumption of innocence and how it should be applied in this case. Mr. Guerin talked about the presumption of innocence, and let's be real clear. Right now, and I think I gave this example in voir dire, right now um, I end up for whatever reason, um, I lose my temper, I'm uh, talking too fast, and, and uh, one of the court reporters looks at me with a bad look and I snap and I assault her. Deputy Washington comes in there, he tries to handle me due to my superior fighting skills, I take care of him. Remember, this is my story, so I can, I can make it up as I want. Four more deputies come in here. They are, of course, also dispatched. Um, by the way, when I went to trial, even though all of you were witnesses here, saw the whole thing, I'm presumed innocent. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't commit the crime. It's very simple. It simply means that when Bob Durst came in here, before evidence was presented, he was presumed to be innocent. That presumption lasts until you evaluate the evidence and until you decide, you know what, the evidence demonstrates him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So let's, let's just not get caught up with the idea that somehow, because he's presumed innocent, he factually is. We've proven him beyond any reasonable doubt to be guilty of everything that we've discussed in this case. Lewin then took on the defense team's well-worn technique of shifting blame to individuals other than the defendant, casting them as villains in Robert Durst's story. Now, what's also interesting is that the defense has another theory in their closing argument. They're going to pretend that, in essence, Bob Durst didn't testify. Other than insult me and say how I'm a bully and I'm mean and I beat up a sick old man, they're not going to talk about any of his testimony at all. They're just going to completely ignore it. It's kind of like when you whistle through a graveyard, you're nervous, you don't want to look around, it's a little bit scary. I'll just pretend I'm not in a graveyard. I'll pretend I'm in the, a beautiful meadow with lovely flowers in the middle of the day. Well, here's the problem. He did testify. What's the other excuse that they use in this case? There's always an evil villain. In a Bob Durst prosecution, there's an evil villain. And what do I mean by that? Well, who were the evil villains that he had in this case? If you think about it. Well, originally it was Seymour Durst was the evil villain. Seymour took me, said wave bye to mommy. Complete lie. He was caught up in it. 
this traumatic event of his father telling him to wave goodbye to mommy, he can't tell the same story twice. Is it his grandfather? Is it his dad? It's neither. It's made up, as his brother Douglas testified to. You can't even see that area of the roof from the window he's talking about. It's absurd, but it's designed to make you feel bad for Bob Durst. Because listen, if you can focus on seven-year-old Bob Durst who lost his mother, and listen, that's a tragedy. There's no question. I'm not saying that Bob Durst, just because he's wealthy, that he has not had some tragedy in his life. But everybody has tragedy. And you don't get to kill people because at age seven you lost your mom. Douglas. Douglas is horrible. Douglas treated him poorly. His whole family treated him poorly. You heard, you heard the testimony from Douglas. Bob was the oldest, and Bob bullied everybody. He bullied Douglas. He bullied Tom. Janine Pirro. Whenever Mr. Chesnoff talks about her, he says, and she's a Fox News host. Uh, as if that somehow matters. I, I don't know, is the idea that because most of us here in California are more liberal, that if he adds Fox News, it's going to inflame, et cetera. It has nothing to do with anything. Um, Janine Pirro did an absolutely abysmal job in this case, obviously, from start to finish. But they made her the villain in Galveston. That's what they did. Bob Durst talked about it. Andrew Jarecki. Andrew Jarecki gave him scripts. Now, listen. Great, great interesting point about Andrew Jarecki. They're saying, where is he? They stipulated to his testimony. They stipulated. They decided that it was in their client's best interest for him not to testify in court. And if they wanted him to testify in court, they could have brought him in. So who's the other villain in this case? It's me. I'm the villain. I'm the bad guy. And I want to address this really offensive characterization head on. So in Mr. DeGuerin's argument, his comment was something to the effect of that um, I beat up on a sick old man. And I want to make something clear. No one on my team, we're not going to apologize for the way we've approached this case. I'm an aggressive prosecutor. There's no question. And when they're making these criticisms, I want to ask you one thing. You imagine tomorrow that a loved one of yours were murdered. And you ask yourselves, what kind of prosecutors would you want on that case? How aggressive would you want them to be? How diligent and prepared and relentless would you want? That man killed three people. He's up here, he's old and he's sick. He got to live to be old. He's 78 years old. Kathy never made it to 30. Susan Berman, his close friend, brutally executed. Morris Black, murdered and then dismembered. Yeah, he certainly has health issues now. No question. But he's lucky to have gotten to live to be 78 to have the health issues he does. Because his victims and their families, they don't have that same peace of mind. They don't have that same rest of their life, that same outlook, that same opportunity. That sick old man, he's 78 because he's gotten away with these cases for a lot of years. Age is not a defense. Infirmity is not a defense. When you murder somebody, there's a reason we don't have a statute of limitations on murder. There's no statute of limitations for those families because when you lose a family member or a loved one, that's a loss that you don't recover from. You don't get closure. The best you can get is justice.
After this invocation of the purpose of justice, Lewin returned to the victim at the heart of the prosecution's case, Susan Berman. The problem for Bob Durst, from his perspective, is not that he killed Susan Berman, it's that he killed her about 20 years too late. And this also brings up the issue of, well, why would Bob Durst tell, have Susan Berman help him when everybody knows she has a big mouth? Well, when you've just killed your wife and you need somebody to help you, you got to have a friend that's going to actually do it. And Susan Berman, as Bob Durst said, there was nothing she wouldn't do for me. So Bob didn't choose Susan because she was the best person to help him. He chose Susan because she was available and she was willing. So what other information do we have? Who does the crime scene evidence point to? I mean, I don't even know how we can get any more. He says he's there and he sent a cadaver note, which he says only the killer could have written. He has himself being there and Susan breathing on him. So the problem for him is, is that his lies, like everything else with Bob Durst, he's lazy. And his lies, although they sound good coming out, they don't survive any examination at all. He believes Susan was about to rat him out to the police. Remember his expression when I was interviewing him in New Orleans. And I say to him, Bob, you didn't, you didn't know that Susan never talked to the police, did you? And you get a moment of honesty from him. No, I didn't. He's realizing, oh my gosh, I, maybe I didn't need to kill her. But it's too late. So we have that. Who fled California immediately after Susan was killed? Bob Durst. Who wrote a note that only the killer could have written? Who fled when incriminating uh, evidence came out? Meaning, with the jinx, episode five, what does he do? He's out there. He's got the gun. He's got the mask. I was going to try this on, but I remember a case that we handled that involved some evidence that someone tried on. It didn't go well, so I think I'll, um, I think I'll put it down. Um, so that's what he did. That's who he is. And finally, he's admitted to killing her multiple times. This evidence points in one direction and one direction only, Bob Durst. After wrapping up his summation of the evidence that Robert Durst killed Susan Berman, Lewin moved on to summarize for the jurors the defendant's multiple alleged confessions. You'll hear that part of Lewin's oration, along with a summary of the conclusion of his rebuttal and our conversation with New York Times reporter Charlie Bagley on the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, 
go back and re-listen to episodes from season one. And head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Notabartolo, with help from Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Notabartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.